everyone to another uh, episode of my weird little podcast. Yay! I remembered it this time. time. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be the one where high profile people or babies get kidnapped. Can, can you repeat can you repeat that one so when I so when I title it <laughs> the one where I people get kidnapped I, I don't know if I should say people it's a baby of people is that a person I guess it's a baby of people that's hilarious oh, kidnapping. Uh, how about the one with high profile kidnappings? There we go. That's, that's a little bit on it's a little bit okay, shorter. There okay. There we oh, go. Wants your Sweet, attention. Thank you. Okay, good, good. Um but yeah, oh, our host today, I should probably get into that. My Our host today are Roxana. <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. She she wants your attention. I know, honey. Okay. Uh, our Hi, other host Roxana. today is uh, baby Susan, my cat next to me right here, who uh, really doesn't understand why my hands are moving and they're not petting her. Right? How dare you? Because <laughs> I'm expressive when I talk, Susan. Let me talk. Um, and she's like crunching my notes, notes over here. Yeah. That's okay. Those are my old notes. Those are my old notes. All I have my new notes are here. You can lay on those. Yes, you'll keep them warm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're gonna hear all that crunching in the background. Yes, I can hear. Um, we have oh. Pat on the ones and twos in the back. So yeah, um, should we go chronologically on this one? Because yours would be first. Okay, yeah, because mine happens in 1960. Yeah, mine's about 30 years before. Yeah. So, um, at face value, mine seemed pretty cut and dry, but then as you start to dig a little bit more, it gets weird. So it's perfect for your weird little podcast. Thanks. Right? Okay. I mean, technically, it's not mine. I think it's mine is the universal me and you. As the, the royal mine. The royal mine, I guess. I don't I know. Do. Maybe I should have put our weird little podcast as most multiple. I get it, Susan. <laughs> he wants attention. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, so, yeah. what uh, What story are you doing tonight? I mean, um, I know, but if you want to tell our the listeners. Lindbergh kidnapping. And most people have heard about this since it, it's been referenced in various popular media, various shows. Um, Charles Lindbergh, you've heard of him, right? Mm-hmm. What, what do you, when you hear of Charles Lindbergh, aside from the kidnapping, what do you think of? He was, he was like a pilot? Yeah. <laughs> So he's okay, a, like, like a Howard pilot. Hughes type, right? What? Not exactly. I mean, he was eccentric in some ways. Um, Charles Lindbergh, he became famous when he flew nonstop from New York City to Paris in May of 1927. And at the time, it was the long, longest solo transatlantic flight. Um, it had the 
had been done before, but it wasn't a solo mission and the route wasn't as long. And it was also the first time that it was from one major city to another. So New York to Paris, he was only 25 at the time. This was a huge deal for the world. And because of this, it actually kind of helped uh, spur and change the aviation industry at that time. And he did a lot of publicity with kind of going around. This was right after World War I, um, helping to promote various airports that were going to be opening up uh, around the United States and also kind of pushing us towards accepting uh, an Air Force. Because now that we knew that pilots can fly across the Atlantic Ocean, that it was possible that that might open us up for future attacks, you know, foreshadowing. Um, So it became kind of a big deal. Uh, It came one of the most, you know, famous people in the world. There was a song written about him. It's one of those old time, you know, Lindbergh, Lucky Lindbergh. I mean, I'm butchering it, but it's similar. Uh, I don't have a song name. How many people do, famous people do we know now that have a song written for what they've done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, other than fuck Donald Trump, maybe. Um. That's That's more of a, but like, you know. um, No, 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 yeah. Obama, first black president, you know, know, we don't have that nowadays. Um, So yeah, he was uh, kind of a big deal. Uh, People knew him. His house smelled of rich mahogany. He had many leather bound books. And mm. now I'm just quoting Anchorman. Um, but no, he was a good deal. Uh, 1927, he was Times Man of the Year. And uh, President Herbert Hoover awarded him the Congressional Gold Medal in 1930. Again, kind of a big deal. And so, like I said, he was doing a lot of more publicity stuff um, during his career, he met Dwight Morrow, who was a partner at J.P. Morgan & Co., who we know is also a big deal. And uh, Dwight Morrow was also the ambassador to Mexico. And so uh, at this time, Charles Lindbergh is kind of doing this publicity stunt. Uh, things were a little bit rocky with Mexico at the time in the United States. And so kind of to smooth things over, uh, Dwight Morrow's like, well, why don't you fly from like uh, New York to Mexico City to show good faith? And so he did that and kind of became close with uh, the Morrow family, would hang out with them. At first, uh, Charles was kind of interested in Dwight's uh, daughter, Elizabeth, but then he later became interested in Anne Morrow's. He was giving her flight lessons. Uh, she learned how to fly. They hit it off. And he decided he was going to marry her. And she was absolutely enamored with him, you know, head over heels. Who wouldn't be? I mean, the man has a song about him. He's totally famous. He's a famous pilot, taught her to fly. It's like I just a- remembered that Susie has a song about her, actually. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> the cat. may or may not about- have been written by Patrick. That but- is true. I don't- <laughs> That's different. Susan's on a whole different level. (laughs) Can't be compared to us. Um, But uh, so, you know, this seems from the surface 
perfectly romantic, you know, famous aviator, rich heiress, they fall in love, they marry May 20th of 1929 in Englewood, not Englewood, Englewood, New Jersey. Englewood, completely different area. Uh, that's in California. Uh, Englewood is where her family had an estate. And in 1930, a Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was born. And at the time, they were living with her family's estate. But, uh, you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh wanted his own house. And he found a place uh, to build a home in East Amwell, New Jersey. But it was going to take time to build this home. So they were kind of splitting their time between two different locations. So they would spend their weekends at the home in East Amwell. And then for the weekdays, uh, they would be in Englewood. Because uh, the home in East Amwell was still being built, didn't have the full staff. There wasn't really any security there. Um so that's why they were splitting their time. Now, on the evening of March 1st of 1932, so Charlie, baby Charlie, is about two years old. It, technically, he's 20 months at this time, but almost two years old. Uh, he was taken from his upstairs room while supposedly everybody was still awake in the house and nobody heard anything. Um, which, you know, it's a big yeah. house. Uh, maybe you didn't hear the muffle of the baby, whatever. Um, uh, after the baby is taken and they, the family finds out that the baby is missing, they go out of the house. And again, I'm, this is surface level because the details actually get very strange, but I kind of just want to tell the story as how I kind of knew it before doing the research and what the public kind of has an idea. Baby's missing. They run out of the house. They being, you know, Charles Lindbergh and one of the uh, staff members, and they find a ladder nearby, and it's uh, a homemade ladder. So it was made from various found pieces of wood, but it was cleverly done. It was done in uh, three pieces that you would put together with the wooden dowels so that you could remove those dowels and the ladder would fold up so that you could easily carry it. So mm -hmm. they figured that this was the ladder that was being used. Sure enough, upon further investigation, they found that there were scratch marks to the right of the baby's window, kind of indicating a ladder had been placed up there. Uh, then they also found a ransom note on the window seal. And the ransom note was done in kind of, um, I don't want to say poor grammar, but Definitely not written by a native English speaker. That's going to come in, that's going to become important later on in the story. Uh, but basically the ransom note was asking for $50,000. This is 1932, $50,000. I mean, even that's more than I make in a year now, today in 2025. So back then, that's a lot of money. So that was, and the ransom note, it was pretty much uh, the usual, like, we want the money, don't contact the authorities or else, you know, baby's going to die. Um, uh, so then they're like, okay, the, the baby has been kidnapped, they figured. Uh, Lindbergh, again, 
supposedly because he he wanted the safety of his child, wasn't really into involving the authorities on this one. Uh, so he wanted to kind of take things in his own hands. And this uh, gentleman or doctor, I should say, who was a huge admirer and supporter of Charles Lindbergh, uh, his name was Dr. John Codon, uh, basically asks, hey, I would love to be the negotiator between you and these kidnappers. And Lindbergh was like, sure, why not? Kind of weird, huh? Yeah, right. (laughs) So anyways, the doctor (laughs) on Coden um, wanted to see all the ransom letters were delivered to him. He kind of had full control over what was happening. But the issue was he was kind of known to embellish a lot and that you his he wasn't exactly the one to be trusted with facts and details because he liked to add things that may or may not have been true. Uh, so he's getting these ransom notes. Um, and this is over a period of like a month. So by beginning of April, that is when uh, he was delivered a note that said, okay, you need to, it is time to deliver that ransom. And he was supposed to deliver the $50,000 to a person at the Woodland Cemetery. And this person was known as Cemetery John. And I kind of want this to be my boylesque name. Cemetery John. John. Oh, man. That's a good Uh, And this was on April 2nd. And so baby was kidnapped March 1st. Ransom wasn't delivered until April 2nd. And during that time, there was a series of various other uh, ransom notes that had been delivered. So gives them the $50,000. And of course, they do track all of the numbers. You know how on money they have the the ID numbers on them. And so basically all the the numbers of the bills that had been given to the kidnappers had been tracked so that authorities could try to see if they could track where this money was going to go. And this also was back when we still had the gold standard. This is actually right at the end of when we're making the transition from the gold standard to what we have now. This is also going to come important later. So they were uh, the gold gold notes that basically they were backed by gold. There was a stamp on it so that you knew they had value. And we have taken that away now, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> um, so the money was handed over and then he was given a note of where the baby was supposedly being held, saying it was on a ship um, being taken care of by two women. Well, that turned out not to be true. They were never able to locate the baby based on the note that they had been given. It was it was a ruse. Um, then on May 12th, an African-American truck driver uh, needed to stop to use the restroom. And he went out into the, the woods a little bit. This is about five miles away from where the Lindberghs were living in their East Amwell estate. Um, and they're saying that because he was African-American, that's why he went further into the woods than normally so that he wouldn't get caught going pee, 
you know, because he's mm-hmm. got to stay safe. And then this is where he stumbled upon the body of a highly decomposed toddler that turned out to be Charles Lindbergh. And based on the state of decomposition, he had actually been there for probably a couple of months. And so they figured, the authorities figured that he had actually probably died the night he was kidnapped. So all of those letters and everything was a complete lie. Now, at first, they speculated uh, based on the cranial damage of the, the body that he might have died from an accident. They noticed that the bottom of the ladder looked like it had been broken. So they were thinking that maybe while they were taking him out of the room, that the ladder broke and ended up dropping the baby. And that's how he died. But um, further examination of the skull, and this is also something weird, there wasn't that much examination of the body. And then Charles Lindbergh's like, I want it cremated. But they, the injuries on the head weren't consistent with with like an accident because there were two impressions on the skull. So there was the one crack on the side of the skull that goes with maybe the the skull hitting the ground accidentally. But on the other side, there was kind of like a little round hole, like an indent that at first they were like, oh, one of the cops says that he was poking the head with the stick and the stick broke through the skull. But they're saying that's not really possible that you can't really poke a skull even after two months of decomposition and it's just going to break on through. So it was likely the, this is terrible, that the baby had been murdered with a sharp blow so that his head was placed on a, a, you know, maybe a rock or cement Uh. or another object then hit with maybe like a hammer or another hard object. And then that's how he actually died. So yeah. that it hadn't exactly been an accident on the night of the kidnapping, that he had pretty much been murdered. Because it makes sense. I mean, it's a two-year-old. A lot of work has to go into taking care of this yeah. two-year-old. Also, Charles Lindbergh Jr. was a little bit of a sickly child. And I'm going to go into that later. So a lot of work. And I've had a two-year-old. They're monsters basically <laughs> uh they're very demanding so we're not really, saying two-year-olds deserve to die or no, anything no, i'm just saying that they take a lot of work to take care of and just some two-year-olds it, yeah well no they're, they're a lot of work you know um so basically they were thinking these criminals were taking the baby they knew it was going to be a high profile case murder the kid and then scam the family out of the money, take it and run, which is exactly kind of what happened. Um, Again, Lindbergh wasn't really involving the authorities as much as they liked. So there was a real lag in trying to find who had done this. Now, two years later, this is where the whole gold standard and switching over the notes kind of comes in handy. Um, Let's see... Uh, so that was 1932. So this is about a year, year and a half later, 1933 ish. Um, the, uh, there's a gas station attendant in Bronx and a customer comes in, wants to pay for about 94 cents of gas, pays for it with a $10 gold note. Now the deadline for exchanging all the gold, gold notes for the 
new standard of money was coming up and it was considered against the law to then try to spend those old gold notes. Mm -hmm. So the gas station attendant was like really worried that this $10 gold note wouldn't be worth anything. So to cover his ass, he, can I say that? Or to cover his butt, he writes the license plate of the number of the customer that had paid for the gas. Um, Now, the thing about that $10 gold note was, according to the numbers on it, it was part of the original ransom money. So they, the authorities decide to go ahead. They track down the owner of the vehicle, and they find that this person has about $14,000 of the ransom money. That's a lot. (laughs) Not the full amount, but um, definitely made the authorities suspicious. And this person was Bruno Richard Hauptmann. Now, of course, he didn't go by his first name, Bruno. He went by Richard Hauptmann to the point where his wife didn't even know that Bruno had been his first name. Uh, So he was a, a German immigrant. And they also found some other very incriminating things in his apartment. One of them was that the wood in his apartment, the grain, actually matched up with a piece of wood that was used to create that ladder I had talked about. Yeah, pretty incriminating. And also journals and sketches um, relating to the, the Lindbergh family and the estate as well. So he's pretty much number one suspects. Uh, and they also collect um, samples of his handwriting as well. I had mentioned that the ransom note was written by somebody that wasn't an English speaker. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a German immigrant and that some of the things that were in the note, such as putting the dollar sign after the numbers mm-hmm. is actually a German thing and that there was misspelling of some kind of common words and just the syntax of it kind of matched up with him being a non-native English speaker and the handwriting experts at the time were saying, oh, yep, this is definitely his handwriting on all of these ransom notes. And, you know, Richard Hopman wasn't exactly like an innocent person. It wasn't like, oh, here's this immigrant. We're going to arrest him because, you know, he's German. Uh, he, he had a pretty shady bas- uh, past back in Germany, including breaking and entering using a ladder to get in. Uh, he was also known to, he held up a couple of women in front of their infants at gunpoint. Um, so he really didn't. He kind of yeah. fit the profile of somebody that uh, was willing to go the distance to get that money without any regard for the life of a woman or child, and that he was pretty risky um, to to accomplish this with a high profile. Because basically everything told the authorities that this was not done by amateurs, uh, this was done by seasoned criminals. Also, how he got to the United States is super shady. He had to break out of jail and then sneak his way into the United States. So <laughs> yeah, kind of already a criminal on the run um, from Germany. So when he gets to Germany, he moves to the Bronx. He starts kind of asking around the German community for people that, you know, he had were from the same area that he was and kind of met up with some folks. Um, and so he was saying that, 
he got all this stuff from one of his friends, uh, but that friend died uh, beforehand, um, uh, a few years beforehand. So of course, you know, that's an easy scapegoat. Oh, my friend is the one that did this. Oh, he's dead. Too bad he can't tell you. The authorities weren't buying it. They go ahead, they arrest him. And then he was indicted on September 24th of 1934 for extortion of money from Charles Lindbergh. And then on October 8th for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. And the trial went on for six weeks and the jury came back and he was found guilty as charged and was later executed by electrocution on April 3rd of 1936. And up until his death, he still said that he was innocent. And even his wife, who lived much longer than that, even up until her death, was basically like, no, he's innocent. And we think, okay, that's the end of the story, right? But there are some kind of weird things once you start looking at the details. Uh. <laughs> well, let's talk about Charles Lindbergh. So before doing the research, I kind of thought what you did, a uh, famous pilot, all-American guy, you know, this mm-hmm. horrible thing happened to him. And it, it was a horrible thing that happened. Um but he was kind of a weird guy himself. That's why when you mentioned uh, what's his face, it's like similar but not exactly the same. Uh, Hughes, Howard Hughes. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. he was Charleston was a bit of a loner, um, and he had a bit of a interesting sense of humor, so to speak. He liked to do practical jokes, but they weren't exactly practical jokes that other people would find funny. For example. Um, uh, he was in the Air Force and he tricked one of the cadets, one of his fellow cadets, by putting kerosene in his water container instead of water. The His friend, his quote unquote friend, drank it. And of course, it had to be hospitalized because drinking kerosene is not for you. And Lindbergh was saying, oh, well, I was just trying to get back at him because he would never fill up the water or something like that. Going, well, you don't put kerosene. You might put like vinegar or yeah. something like they drank it. It's going to taste bad, but it's not going to harm them. Yeah, That was his idea of a funny practical joke. Yeah. Uh, once he was hanging out with the Morrow family, like I said, he would his idea of a funny joke was to pull like the boats or the canoes out from under them so that they would all fall in the water. And again, it was something like, oh, you find funny. But none of us really do. This. Yeah. And um, the family was also very concerned because during the courtship with Anne, uh, Lindbergh was very controlling. He liked to have his way, even with the the marriage and the wedding and everything. It was pretty much what Lindbergh wanted. And Anne went along with it. Pretty much whatever he wanted, she would go ahead and do. Like I said before, she was absolutely enamored with him um and he would do some really weird things so when she was seven months pregnant he made her fly across the united states and again this is before our jet airliners where we have the uh, 
the atmosphere compression where everything is nice and safe. We make sure we have enough oxygen. So this is before all of that. So she's up there in the high atmosphere. Um, she's not getting enough oxygen to the point where they, when they land on the East coast, she has to be hospitalized and that they are worried that maybe something might've happened uh, with the baby. Well, sure enough, I had talked a little bit about how Charles Lindbergh was a bit of a sickly child. Um, when he, he, when he was growing up, he had a mild form of rickets. It's what you get when you don't have enough vitamin D and it can cause deformations in the bone. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't as bad as some other cases, but it was to the point to where like his, his, they said like his toes were curled up and that he couldn't really stand uh, when the doctor was trying to get him to stand up. Um, he also had issues with his skull. His skull was larger than average for his age. And the fontanelle, which is a little soft spot, um, hadn't closed up. And by 20 months, it should already be closed up at that time. Um, and so they're thinking that there had been issues with fluid in the brain that could have easily been caused by a lack of oxygen. Um, right, exactly. So he was, um, you know, wasn't the strongest, healthiest of child. Also, Lindbergh didn't really seem to want to be around him at all and actually would do uh, a lot to try to separate Anne from Charles Jr. So she, you know, would want, obviously a mother, you're going to want to spend time with your, your baby. But then he decided that she needed some rigorous flight lessons and would pretty much take her out all day and to where by the time she came home, the baby was already asleep because he also had the baby on a very strict schedule, basically having the baby go to sleep before he or her would get home so that they would rarely be spending a lot of time with Charles Jr. Uh, There was also accounts of him kind of being, again, playful, but in a mean way uh, where when Charles Jr. was trying to like walk across the room towards him, uh, Lindbergh would throw a pillow at him. So make, causing him to fall down to to the point where the baby just kind of learned to not get up and cross and walk over to Lindbergh. And also with his fragile bones due to rickets, that's not something you really want to do to a toddler. Like yeah. throwing tools at them. Um, uh, so yeah, there was that odd relationship. He just seemed very much wanted to distance Anne and himself from baby Charles. And one of the reasons people speculate is that, well, Charles Lindbergh was very much into eugenics. And eugenics, oh, no. <laughs> uh, selective breeding of human beings based yeah. on intelligence and health. And he yeah. was very much in this saying, you know, commenting like, you know, pilots are always going around, hooking up with all these women, when in reality, you really need to make sure that you are in a, a good, stable relationship with a woman of, of healthy breeding. Mm-hmm. And so they're thinking that maybe his mm, dismissal or dislike, not dislike, but his not wanting to really bond with Charles Jr. Mm-hmm. really had to do with the fact that he was kind of seen as sickly and not as strong. Yeah. Uh, ironically, it was because probably what Charles did to Anne while she was seven months pregnant. (laughs) So kind of a jerky thing to do. Um, 
So he's super into this eugenics. And one theory is that Charles Lindbergh might have been the one to help orchestrate the kidnapping of his own child, not necessarily to have him murdered, but at least get him out of the way and maybe have him institutionalized or put away, which was something that apparently was done back in that time, the 1920s and 30s. You have a family member you don't like, let's find a way to to lock them away for the rest of their life. So mm-hmm. we don't have to deal with it. Uh, some of the reasons why they feel that they, um, why some scholars and investigators believe that Lindbergh had uh, anything to do with the kidnapping was for a few weird reasons. First of all, where they were, they were at their estate in East Amwell and March 1st fell on a Tuesday. Now, what's weird about that is they were usually never there at East Amwell during the weekdays. Uh, during the mm-hmm. weekdays, they would actually be in Englewood. And they would only be at East Amwell during the weekends. So authorities were wondering how did they how did the kidnappers know that Lindbergh would be there at that house at that time. And of course, it was very convenient uh, for the kidnappers at East Amwell because there was no security. There was limited staff where in Inglewood, it was heavily guarded. There was a lot of people. There was family members all around. So it was a very convenient place to do a kidnapping, but also on a day that the family was not usually there. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they were there, so... Um, Anne was there with Charles, baby Charles, during the weekend. And apparently, baby Charles was suffering a cold. So they were giving him cold medication. And, you know, back in the 1930s, uh, that cold medication was much stronger than what we have now. <laughs> um, and they were giving it to him, and it would apparently knock baby Charles out pretty quickly. Um, and then uh, Lindbergh apparently was up in New York, and he was going to be uh, doing some speaking and some stuff. And he told Anne, you know what, why don't you just stay at the East Amwell place? Don't go back to your, to your family's place. And I'll, I'll be there on Tuesday. And so she's, she listens to whatever he says. So she stays at East Amwell, uh, Monday night. Uh, he doesn't come home. Then on Tuesday, he's like, you know what, stay another night, uh, at East Amwell and I'm going to be home later. Uh, and Lindbergh had a very strict bedtime schedule for Charles Jr. So the nanny was to, not Anne, the nanny was to put Charles Jr. down at 7 p.m. Or was it 7 or 8? It was like super early, like 7 p.m. And then she wasn't to go in or do anything until about 10 p.m. And then at 10 p.m., she could go back into his room and take him to the potty or do whatever. So he was very strict that the baby down at seven, no contact, nothing for the next few hours. And then you come back at 10 and do everything else. And Anne was not to be a part of this. So the baby is is put down at 7 p.m. or put to to put down to sleep, not put down euthanasia. Uh, Charles comes home like later that evening after the baby had been put to sleep. 
around like 8, 8.30 or so. So the kid is already asleep. He's with uh, Anne. Um, they decide to go up to bed. Uh, the nanny was spending time in the servants' quarters, which were over the garage, so away from where the the baby's nursery was. And she goes in at 10 o'clock to do the usual wake him up, take him to the potty. And she sees that he's not in his room. So she thinks, oh, maybe Anne had decided to pick him up and take him into her room. So she goes over to Anne and was like, hey, uh, do you have the baby? And she's like, no, I do not. What do you mean he's missing? So they go into the room and, you know, they're searching. They can't find them. Then they let Charles Lindbergh know and he runs into the room. And one of the first things he says is he must have been kidnapped. This is before any ransom note had been found. And in fact, the ransom note didn't get found until a little bit later. So this is after the mom and the nanny have gone in and looked around. And conveniently, the note was found by Charles Lindbergh on the window seal. It was a sealed envelope and he didn't want to open it. He was very adamant about, let's not open the ransom note until the authorities get here. Wait. Was the window open? Yes, the window was oh, open. Okay, um, huh, but the ladder wasn't though. there. Yeah, the ladder but- wasn't there, and it was also a weird thing because that particular window, the lock had been broken for a bit, and apparently Lindbergh had had a handyman around the house fixing things. But even though he had known that this lock on the window was broken, never had the handyman fix that lock, that particular mm. lock. So again. They're saying this is why there must have been an inside person because how did the kidnappers know they would be there? How did the kidnappers know that particular window was going to be unlocked? Unlocked so, in the baby's room, you know. Right. So the nanny says that Lindbergh and one of the other servants immediately went out to search around the house, but they didn't have flashlights. So as they're going outside, Lindbergh sends the ser- the employee, I want to say servant, um, but yeah, to go to town to buy some flashlights. And on his way there, he runs into the cops who have flashlights. So he's like, oh, fantastic. Come back with me. So they return back to the property with the cops. And somehow Lindbergh is able to lead them directly to the ladder. And now Lindbergh's story is also kind of about finding the ladder is a little bit off as well, because he's saying that he didn't immediately go out to look for the ladder. Uh, It gets a little bit convoluted, but the weird thing is it was dark. They didn't have the flashlights. How did he know exactly where the ladder was going to be? Mm. So they find the ladder um, and Lindbergh is very nonchalant about Mm. the whole thing. He doesn't seem to be as worried about the fact that the kid is gone, uh, doing a lot of not really wanting the authorities to get in on it, having Dr. John Codon be the the mediator. And also another weird thing was the fact that um, Lindbergh never asked for proof that the baby was still alive. He was like, no, 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 I trust him. I trust that the baby is still alive, where we now know the baby had pretty much died the night of the kidnapping. Um, And uh, 
(laughs) then it gets, then you start digging a little bit more into Lindbergh's background. Not only was he into eugenics, but when he went to Germany, he was very uh, fond of what the uh, Nazis were doing. He actually kind of agreed with that. And it was later found out that he ended up having seven children with three different German women. Ugh. And they, they, I mean, I didn't mean, ugh. like, that's not like, no, but yeah, exactly. So (laughs) they did it. They confirmed it with genetic testing, but that kind of leads to his idea of the eugenics of only passing on the strongest um, for these people to, you know, like he was obviously doing that on purpose. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, Also, another thing too was, this couldn't have been done by just one person, but the authorities had so much pressure into finding somebody, anybody, because a few yeah. years had passed, that once they got Richard Hoffman, um, they pretty much didn't press him for who were who was your accomplishments, the accomplices. They pretty much wanted to, to nail him, have him take the hit. And, you know, get executed and that kind of thing. Uh, But like I said, he couldn't really have done it alone. Uh, There were other people that had been suspected that might have helped him out. For one of them was John Knoll, who they think might have been Cemetery John. Because they looked at the police sketch. You see a sketch of John Knoll. They look very similar. But also, to be fair, the police sketch does look like a regular old white guy it kind of could resemble Pat, you know, if you put him in a, in a fedora hat, it's like, oh, he just looks like your generic white guy. No offense, Pat. But I, that's what I, when I saw the picture, I'm like, oh, uh, that can kind of look like anybody. <laughs> no, no, um, no, I, I uh, get that all the time at the museum. Right. So. Exactly. Um, John Knoll <laughs> was also uh, from Germany who uh, worked on a deli, him and his brother, both worked at a deli and that there had been witnesses saying that they had met up with somebody who went by the name of Bruno, which we know was Richard's first name, mm-hmm. and that they had been talking a lot about Englewood, which is the estate where Lindbergh uh, and his wife, Anne Morrow, were living for most of the week. Another weird thing was that John Null, once um, Richard had been indicted, spent $700 on a couple of tickets to Germany. And again, this is back in the 1930s. $700 is a lot of money for a German immigrant working at a deli. Mm -hmm. And he stayed in Germany until Richard was sentenced. Or uh, yeah, until Mm -hmm. he was found guilty. Then he's like, oh, I'm going to come back. And like when he came back, he was very generous with a lot of money. And it was never really stated where did he get all this money. So they're thinking he also might have been, him and his brother also might have been accomplices in that. But of course, because it happened so long ago, because there's still a lot of things missing, um, there's really not of how to connect between how maybe Lindbergh had coordinated it with maybe these criminals to have this done. But that is one of the mysteries behind uh, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby that is not exactly as cut and dry as I had initially thought or how we're kind of presented it, that a lot of shady things between 
how Lindbergh was acting, uh, how the baby died, how he was kidnapped, the whole eugenics thing, that in the end, everything just doesn't quite add up. And I feel really bad for Anne because she seemed to really love her child, but ends up losing him probably because, first of all, ends up having a sick child because of her controlling stupid husband who then later harms allegedly does something that ends up with yeah, the child. She didn't even get to spend time with her baby before. Right? He did a lot of maneuvering and scheduling to separate her from him. So that oh yeah, and another thing that was weird was um when the when he was like really young, uh Charlie Jr. uh Lindbergh had planned a couple month overseas trip with Anne to the point that they were gone for so long that when they returned, the baby didn't even recognize them as their parents. And Charles Lindbergh didn't seem to have a problem with this. So mm-hmm. you can theorize that that maybe it had, had something planned once he realized that the baby wasn't going to be as strong or wasn't healthy, that he was probably trying to come up with a way to rid, Get rid the of family. the baby, yeah. Of course, not by murder, but more of a an elaborate kidnapping plot that will later have the 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 kid end up institutionalized. So that's yeah. kind of the tragic story of the Lindbergh kidnapping, and we're never going to know the truth because they know yeah. forensics. We don't have the DNA. They couldn't. Even fingerprint experts couldn't find any fingerprints. It was just mm-hmm. a lot of really weird circumstances surrounding this. But yeah, Lindbergh was kind of a dick. I guess that's yeah. what I learned. He was definitely a dick. Definitely into eugenics. Was a okay with, with these like weird high profile pilots? Like Howard Hughes was also like. I mean, Howard Hughes like as far well, no, no, Howard Hughes was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would no. get into details about that, but we'll do an episode on this podcast about him. So well, yeah, because he was weird, like the whole <laughs> tissue boxes and, and on his feet and being afraid of all. Oh yeah, no, and ma- he had a clinic, so yeah. that he would make the girls that he would sleep with go to this clinic. So that I mean, granted, I guess he was just trying to be safe, but that's also like kind of weird. <laughs> but and nowadays standards. It kind of, we understand, because, you know, we would think it really be- weird if you would make somebody wash their hands before they come into your house or spray yeah. down your well, skin. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We've been doing that for, what, the past almost two years? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, it's interesting. Um, but, yeah, that's not really a happy ending, and it's not really an ending mm-hmm. that can be wrapped up with a tiny bow just because of all the mystery. But it definitely opened my eyes that there was a lot more to the story than I feel yeah. we're kind of given in mainstream media and that yeah. it's um, not as cut and dry as it's always been presented. So, all right, uh, let's get to my story. First okay. off, I've already opened up my cores. So I was going to crack it open for the story, but I started drinking it mid your story and I haven't had a course in years, but I must say that it is Okay. <laughs> like, like water. <laughs> I'll it's give this a, water. I'll give this a six or seven out of ten. It's not that sure, bad. 
Yeah. No, no, no. Like I have not a clue. Well, how, what would you rate like Budweiser or Bud Light? Oh, six or seven. No, I'd say, okay. I'd say it's. I'd say Coors is okay. Coors is going to be like a five, where Budweiser I'd say is like a six. That's I wouldn't even rate. That's really high for that kind of beer. I'm just saying. Uh, I'm saying like all maybe, other beers are like nine, maybe. eight or nines. You know. Well, not IPAs are ones. We'll just throw that out there. IPAs are ones. I also prefer like sours and different things. So, mm. uh, you know, I like all like different types. Like it's not appalling. No, it's like, not. But like for a cheap kind of beer that comes from one of those large corporations, I would prefer like a Blue Moon. I, I yeah, that would... yeah. I, I don't think like I like it because it is like water. I don't like, like I think I find I think I find it like I don't know. Like, like a Lacroix, it's that yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same type of feel that I get from it. Like it's just extremely cold. I'm drinking it. That's what I need. Yeah. There you go. For the like record, it. for the listeners, I always have three types of Lacroix in my refrigerator at all times. I'm full yeah. of mood. I do have pamplemousse, usually, yeah. and I have pamplemousse, and then I either have limoncello or key lime pie. Uh, not those key are lime pie. decent flavors. Decent right. Lacroix flavors. Like as far as Lacroix goes, those are the good ones. You know. Yeah. yeah. I think pamplemousse is like the pink star star burst, the pink star burst of the Lacroix. Yeah. So. Right oh. now we have the beach plum, which I, I actually like. Pat likes that. I don't like that at all, but it's fine. Uh, for the record, for my listeners, pamplemousse along with peach brandy, especially E&J's peach brandy and pamplemousse is like the ultimate drink. But Ooh. I'm not exactly sure if E&J discontinued it because they do not, they no longer sell it at the Smiths down the street oh. from us. Uh, and I'm very disappointed. <laughs> okay, I like to point out that now PJ is wanting to get in on this yeah. podcasting. What time is it? It's probably like when we would come home from work right now, like eight thirty, nine o'clock. So there she there, is. yeah, it's food time. Unless cat turned into a cat. <laughs> All right, I'll get into my story. Uh, ah, Pat can, Pat's so funny. Uh, I'll get to it, but Pat like did not want me to spoil the story for him. And then he walked in while I was watching the forensic files episode and don't spoil it, Pat, but I'm going to point out when I get to that part of the story where he walked in and yeah. So first off, I got most of my information from weird history uh, which is a YouTube podcast is how I first heard about this story. Uh, weird history is everything I love. I love it so much. And I got it also from a forensic files episode. Um, an interview that on YouTube, an interview at the Coors brewery from one of their bartenders slash tour guides talking about this, um, and um and i think that's it okay that's it that's those are all my i mean i think i got oh and i got one piece from wikipedia but i didn't really i don't i love wikipedia but i don't like depending my whole story on it you can tell when it's my whole story what's that it's like 
it's a good place to go where you want to get like the names and dates yeah. and very clean and dry facts. But when you want to get nuances and yeah, yeah, I feel like my not so great podcast on my part is when I only have Wikipedia as my reference. No offense to Wikipedia, please donate to them. They provide so much information. Yeah, uh, for free. Only two percent of their listeners actually donate. They are. I'm pretty sure they're a private company. They're not like public knowledge, even though the knowledge is out there for the public. You know. So I'm not dissing Wikipedia. There's also a Murderpedia that um, I want to check out. I have not really used them yet for my research, but I think down the line when I start running out of ideas for podcasts, like I'm definitely going to draw for, from them. So anyways, my story today, without further ado, is about the uh, kidnapping of Adolf Kors the third. So if that name sounds familiar to you, it like, especially his last name. <laughs> well, both the names sound familiar, but for various, like very different reasons. Familiar yeah. The different parts the last one because of the beer. So apparently Adolf was a popular first name up until I guess, um, the 1940s uh, or fifties. Um, because uh, he's Adolf the third, Adolf Kors the third. So there are two other Adolf Kors before him. So, but it went out of popularity after you know the 1940s and World yeah, Wars. that's what I'm saying. Uh, Adolf Kors the third. Oh, now I'm gonna look it up actually on Wikipedia. I did not write down when he was born, but I'm assuming if he's 31 in the 1960. He would have been born 1915. So by that time, during that time, the Adolf name probably wasn't so frowned yeah. upon. <laughs> like if he had been born like in the 1950s or 60s with the name Adolf, that's where you can be like, yeah, that, sure, it's a family name, but you need to yeah. retire. However, Adolf Kors IV is also um, his son, but he's not on Wikipedia uh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go into it. Wait, okay. Adolf Kors the fourth. Excuse me. Yeah. Not too much information on him. Adolf Kors the fourth, apparently still alive. Anyways. So, um, okay. Let me get into it. I have a lot of information on the case. Uh, I have a little bit of information about the family. However, I heavily suggest, uh, going into the family history because they are like the Vanderbilts. They are this very politically driven family with a lot of weird things that happen in secrets. And I tried to stick to this one particular case without going down too many rabbit holes. Um, and I didn't find out how seedy and bad of a family they were or company they were until after I had already bought the Coors that I'm drinking. Yeah. So if you like Coors, I'm not saying stop buying Coors, but currently right now they are owned by the Frito-Lay company, which we all know is having uh, big problems. Well, not a problem, but to them it's a problem with their unions. They are not providing proper um, 
uh, well, I'm not going to get too much into it, but they're not providing for their employees and the unions are trying to fight Lay's right now, Frito-Lay's, and there's this whole strike that's going to be happening or is already happening. I'm not really into yeah, it There's a lot much. of strikes apparently going to can be happy. Unions. Oh are yeah, yeah. Back. Your union is striking too, isn't it? At the moment. Well, not a, a branch of our union, the IOC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That they, if the studios do not settle on a negotiation, then they should be striking. I want to say the 18th or the 21st. I'm terrible, but soon. Which wow. they should. Yeah, they really should because it's really about their safety, and yeah, they deserve to have a a good working environment, just like those. That's Frito-Lay. Yeah. Continue. Which is ironic because before Frito-Lay purchased Coors, while the Coors family was still owning the Coors Brewing Company, um, they also tried to fight unionization. They were very uh, pro-right and conservative and uh, did not believe in the rights of their employees and they were very polarized politically because of this and uh, disliked by the media because of this. So that's a whole thing. There's a book called uh, Citizen Cores that gets into more details about it. The man who wrote this very much despises the Cores family or is very passionate about these things. I didn't go too far down that rabbit hole because I would have had to spend days and days on this research. And uh, I really wanted to focus on this. So I'll give a little bit about the Chorus Company, but really more focus on this situation that happened. So the Coors uh, beer family uh, started brewing in the late 19th century, and they actually survived prohibition. Uh, So in 1873, German immigrant Adolf Coors the first Adolf Coors, uh, and his partner, Jacob Schuler, uh, purchased a recipe for a Pilsner-style style beer from a man named William Sillian. Uh, and I'm probably butchering those names as I always butcher names. I'm so sorry. Uh, so he purchased this. Uh, he purchased an old tannery on the banks of Clear Creek, Schuler and Coors uh, beer was released in 1874. So that's what it was originally called, was Schuler and Coors beer. Sure, okay. So Adolf Coors, the first, had uh, heard rumors of prohibition well before 1916. And when it was implemented in Colorado, he started up the Coors Porcelain Company in 1912. And then he transformed his brewing factory into the Coors Malted Milk Company, which they were able to use like the exact same brewery. Sorry, and everything. Uh, They also had to dump quite a few. What's up? You're burping. It's the curse of the Coors. It's Coors that's making me burp right now. (laughs) (laughs) They also had to dump uh, a few barrels of beer or quite a few barrels of beer this caused controversy because they were like, well, why couldn't you sell the this or give it away? Why are you dumping it? And really, honestly, they had to just get rid of the product because prohibition was right around the corner. And if they would have had this product, 
there would have been no way for them to, there would have been nothing they could have done with it anyways. Not saying they were right in doing this. I was not there. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they also made this one product that I found out about uh, that was mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting. It's called the Coors Cereal Beverage. And I, I'm imagining like a malted milk type of cereal drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was supposed to be like a breakfast drink. And it had less than 1% alcohol. Yeah, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like horrified and intrigued all at the same time. Yeah. Like, I love cereal. I might have to try it. Wait, what year was this, man? <laughs> this, this is like 1915. Or no, nine, this is like 1916, 17. So this is after okay. Prohibition. I'm sure they don't make this anymore because why but, would yeah, they? Yeah, but people are putting like right, more yeah, because it's disgusting. Their, their cough medicine. So, yeah. You know, they're so anyways, just like they, wild, wild and loose with yeah. alcohol. So it did have 1% alcohol, which was the amount that was allowed because they could not take all of the alcohol out of the beverage and still be using like the same machinery or something. That's how it was explained. So um, Mm -hmm. they did not make a profit during the time of prohibition. They just broke even. Uh, But in 1933, prohibition ended. The Coors had started making their beer months beforehand. They had this inkling that prohibition was going to end. And on midnight, uh, the night that it was ended, which I should have had this actual date. I'm going to quick Google search it. Mm-hmm. Prohibition. Oh, yeah. when did prohibition end? This I is your like job, Pat. I feel like we can't celebrate uh, hold, this. Hold, hold on, sorry. Beep, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, 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 I, I recall celebrating the end of prohibition, but I think part of the celebration is then you end up forgetting yeah. your celebration of the end of prohibition. December 5th, 1933. So on December 4th, 1933, at they so the day before they had loaded up all of their trains and at midnight they sent these trains out to get to all of the bars so that the alcohol could be served like as soon as possible as soon as it was legal so that is how they survived prohibition so um anyways Adolf Kors the third ended up becoming the face for the company. Uh, And he was a shy sort of person. He also had a speech impediment. His father was also kind of controlling and abusive. It, of course, the second. Um, Some weird shady shit happened there. Uh, But it, of course, the third was like not the ideal face for the company, but he was the one to end up inheriting the company because his brother was uh, did not like beer and wasn't old enough to run the company. It, of course, the third I heard, I believe he was allergic to beer, but he uh, and he also had a speech impediment. So that's why they didn't want him to be the face of the company. And I'm just going to say right out there, I have a speech impediment and it has held me back for a lot of things I can't do. Like I will probably never be on TV. I will probably never do voiceover, but it does not stop me from having a podcast. It does not stop me from 
what you're looking confused, but you've probably not heard it because I'm very careful to keep it under wraps. I have no idea. I was this many days old. (laughs) If you listen closely and sometimes it's worse than other times, I have an SHCH speech impediment. Oh, I do not hear it. So when I see things like cheese, it comes out very slushy or my S, my sh and my sh sound. But right now I'm like really focusing on not doing it. So other times it's been very cringy before when I've done like short films and things like that, where I've had lines that were supposed to be important, but they come out sounding like Sid the Sloth from Ice Age. (laughs) you know (laughs) so uh and I've had people make fun of me for it they think I'm doing a Sid the Sloth impression and I'm not that's how my voice is and it's yeah it sucks but honestly it's not holding me back from doing my podcast multiple podcasts two podcasts (laughs) and being being a tour guide having a job where I'm actually on the microphone in front of people all the time like it might hold me back from other things. Like I'm probably never going to do voiceover unless I'm doing a Sid the Sloth type character, you know, but so be it, whatever. Anyways, tangent. <laughs> but at least you're not allergic to beer. At least I'm not allergic to beer. So, and yeah, sorry to those work. who are. No exactly. So, da, 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 100 years, Coors family was making beer. They're the fifth largest brewery. There are 10 breweries in uh, three different countries, and they make 1 billion gallons of beer annually. All right, so we're all caught up. <laughs> beer. Beer. Adolf. So, in 1960, the founder's grandson, Adolf Coors III, he was the company chairman. And, okay, so February 9th, 1960, starts out as a normal day for Adolf Coors III. He wakes up, and at 5.30 a.m., he went to go check on his horses and feed them and kiss his wife goodbye. So um, his wife is not a horse, though. I realize that that sounds like his wife is a horse. His wife is not a horse. Being where the horses are in the stable, you know, feed the horse, kiss my wife goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) When I was writing that earlier, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to say that without it sounding like his wife's a horse. His wife is married. Oh, I was going to say the Clydesdales, but no, that's Budweiser. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he gets into his station wagon and he uh, drives uh, to the family brewery, which is 12 miles away uh, in Golden, Colorado. So Pat and I have actually been to Golden, Colorado, but not on purpose. (laughs) Yeah, that was was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. So our friends got married last month in Denver, Colorado, in Arvada. So apparently the streets in Denver, Arvada, and the neighboring city of Golden are like – I don't remember what street they lived on, but let's just say Smith Street. So there's like Smith Avenue, but then Smith Street is like miles and miles and miles away. And then there's like a Smith Boulevard and a Smith Drive. And so we ended up at the right address with the wrong avenue or street or boulevard. Oh, no. Like 
mile, not too far, but like 20 minutes drive from where we needed to be. Yeah. I was initiating their wedding. Oh, no. <laughs> so we, we left, though, like two, maybe three hours before the wedding to be there super early. We we're like, what's the earliest you're going to be comfortable with people coming? Uh, and so we left super, super early. Luckily, we were able to get a lift uh, to get over there. But we ended up in Golden, Colorado, which is not Arvada, Colorado. Nope. But Golden is beautiful. It's a very, very <laughs> beautiful town. We ended up in a beautiful neighborhood, and we were stuck there for, like, 20 minutes. It set us, like, 40 minutes back. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, we had left over an hour early, you know. It was yeah. fine. And we got there on time, and the wedding went off without a hitch. And Denver is beautiful. And I didn't yeah. even realize. I was, like, we we went to, like, a couple restaurants, and they kept being, like, uh, when I would, like, pick out a beer, they're, like, well, we have Coors. And I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> like, I didn't understand. Like, every restaurant was like, we have this, 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 and we have Coors. But it was always like, they were like, we have Coors. So. Like, you drink the Coors. Yeah. Now, does it better there? Because it's like the real Rocky Mountain waters. No, I yeah. didn't drink it. Well, I was about to say, we didn't, we didn't try. Yeah. No. We try the Coors. Okay. <laughs> but I was like, very confused as before. Like, everyone, it's like they're like pushing cores on you or like I was like cores must be like the drink to drink here in Colorado and apparently it is uh yeah. especially in that area because golden is like right around the corner um so yeah good good on them uh I do want to uh tour the cores brewing uh brewery so, at some point yeah. if if they do tours uh we did tour the Molly Brown house and that was awesome. That was so awesome. That was uh, really cool. Yeah, especially because I love Victorian stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, if she has green wallpaper, I'm going to die. I'm just going to die. And she had Did green wallpaper. Ever... Yeah. died. Okay. I, I didn't die. <laughs> I didn't lick the <laughs> wallpaper. Okay. So wow. I am fine. Um, okay. But yeah, I'm like obsessed with the fact that like Victorians like put arsenic in everything. So anyways. Oh yeah, surrounded uh, themselves with poison and then they all their stories are like, and then he suddenly fell ill and you're going, yeah, because he's ingesting yeah. poison for the last 20 years. <laughs> Victorians are great. Like I just want to like do a whole episode on uh, my morbid fascination with Victorians and their morbid fascination with death. And all of that, and arsenic, and all that. So, anyways, tangent again. So, uh, Adolf Coors the third, he goes to leave for work around seven fifty-five a.m. and uh, in his station wagon. Yes. Uh, around uh, eleven a.m., a milkman uh, fi- finds his station wagon on the one-lane Turkey Bridge. Uh, the car was running. The radio was on. There was a brown stain on the bridge Ooh. and on the seat. The pair of glasses and a hat on the bridge. And they later found a hat over the bridge as well, down below. So two hats. Two hats. Okay. Uh, the milkman calls the authorities and the car is identified as belonging to Coors, as well as the belongings. The, the two hats and... Uh, 
the glasses are all belonging to Coors. Both hats? Yeah. So one was his like casual hat and one was like his work fedora. So he must have had both of them on him. Um, I don't know how they would have ended up outside of the car. Maybe he was switching one hat to the other at some point. But there's also um, these brown stains are obviously blood stains. And Adolph Kors is nowhere to be found. Okay. So in the 1960s, people wore more hats than we do. So it could be viable that he had both hats with him in the car. Yeah, that's probably what happened. Yeah. Um, anyways, a witness nearby said that they had heard a gunshot in the area around the time. But it was also an area known for hunting, so they didn't yeah. really think anything of the gunshot that they heard. Yeah. So police sent out an all-points bulletin on cores, but no one had seen him. And the next day, his wife received a ransom letter in the mail. And the ransom letter reads as, here I go, give me one second. And to clarify, it's not a horse. What? Who's not a horse? Yeah. Okay, so you can read. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Clicking. (laughs) Two clicks for, okay, no. Yes. Um, Mrs. Kors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom. 200,000 in tens, 300,000 in twenties. There will be no negotiation. Uh, bills? No, bills. Bills used. Non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning, we will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions, place money and this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in denver post section 69 sign ad king ranch fort loopton are you giggling because i said 69 it's it's i dirty mind is a joy forever i thought it was pat giggling you i'm not oh Oh, shit i'm not muted (laughs) now you find out (laughs) okay Wait at NA 9-4455 for instructions after ad appears. Deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. That's it. No signature, no sign off, nothing. So, and this person already assumes that the authorities have not been called the next day, um, but she received it pretty immediately the next day. So I'll get into that. Or magazine letters. Okay. 
It's a typed letter, and I'll get into that in a second as well. So the family gets the money together, and they wait for a call for instructions on where to deliver it, and the kidnapper never calls or contacts the family ever. Even after they did the tractor advertisement? Yeah, they do all what they're supposed to, but they never receive any further instructions. Interesting. So... Uh, because of the Lindbergh kidnapping, uh, uh, kidnapping at this point was a federal offense. Yes, that happened actually the day, I should have mentioned that, the day after. So this was March 2nd of 1932. That's when they came out with the Lindbergh law that made it a federal offense to transport any kidnapped person over the state lines mm-hmm. or to basically to kidnap somebody. But since then, though, children are rarely ever kidnapped for money anymore. Other reasons, but rarely money and ransom. So this is not the first time that a Adolf Kors was uh, kidnapped, or at least attempted so. Uh, his father, uh, Adolf Kors II, there was an attempting kidnapping on him 27 years earlier, which was ended up botched. Because the three guys that were plotting to kidnap Adolf Kors II, one of them ended up going to jail for another offense, and then that just kind of fell through. But, oh, no. But uh, the media knew about that situation going down. This family, like, there were so many things. So, like, when this happened, the media thought that this was, like, a hoax put on by the family because of them uh, their political stances and the unions, and they were like trying to gain sympathy. They thought oh. that it was someone, oh, pardon me, who might have attacked the family because of their political reasons or because of what was going on with the union. So there was a lot spread in the media that was kind of overblown and rumors and like not accurate at this time. None of that really had anything to do with this story or what happened. But, you know, that's just, that's another layer. (laughs) But anyways, so the kidnapper never contacts the Coors family ever again. So the FBI study the ransom letter for clues. There are no fingerprints on the ransom letter, but they did notice that the typist was proficient. The typist left two spaces after the period, and that's like what you're typically taught to do in a typing class. Yeah, standard. Yeah, standard. There are no typos whatsoever. Uh, The typeface was made by a Swiss company called SeaTag, and they were manufactured by two companies, uh, Hermes in Switzerland and Royal McBee Company in Holland. Uh, The numerals in the ransom letter were rounded, which was uh, typical for a Royalite portable typewriter typewriter. So they basically figured that this was the type of typewriter that this was used. They're sold in throughout the 1950s and 60s, uh, widely in department stores, and they cost about $49.95. $49.95. So, you know, they're a little expensive, but not that expensive. Yeah, it'd be like Almost getting a a, com- a cheaper computer, like yeah. a cheap laptop nowadays. Yeah. yeah. So it wouldn't be that uncommon, yeah. you know. 
but there was a type defect on the letter S. Uh, it was lower than the others. So, yeah, so there was a type defect on this one particular machine. Uh, a witness had see seen a car parked near the kidnapping site, which was a 1950s model Mercury sedan. And they did remember part of the license plate number, which was AT62. So this witness, he, he was a miner and he was watching his mines and making sure that there wasn't anybody going to come in and disturb his mines. So he was like, I wouldn't say paranoid, but he was like watching guard over his mining, uh, his mining properties and the several mines he had in the area. So when he saw a, a suspicious car pull up, he remembered it and he purposely memor memorized the license plate, thinking that it was someone who was going to come and maybe try to steal stuff from his mines or disturb his mine later, you know? Yeah. Um, he was like a dragon. He's uh, watching over his buried treasures. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So police found four Mercury sedans with AT62 in the license plate. Uh, FBI checked all of them, but one registered to a Walter Osborne stood out. He had bought the car one month earlier. And when they went to go check out his apartment, it was empty. And he had, he had moved out the day after the kidnapping, which coincidence, coincidence, but here we go with <laughs> all of this. So uh, his neighbors said that he had a quiet demeanor and was unsocial, which is also just a, you know, coincidence, but they had often heard him typing at night. The cleaning lady who cleaned his room said that she had seen a gun in his room. Uh, they found empty boxes for a pair of handcuffs and leg restraints in the trash in the back. Also want to know how they knew they were like restraints. Was was this just something Maybe that was, was like sold? BDSM. Maybe that's why she knew. She was like, mm, I know what that is. Yeah. No. Well, no, the FBI knew what those were. She wasn't hey, the one who found the leg restraints. But well, then the FBI would know because I'm sure they deal with leg restraints. But yeah. But okay, also yeah. super kinky. He was just antisocial, liked to type and was into uh, yeah. bondage. So uh, they dusted the room for fingerprints, and the fingerprints matched a convicted killer named Joseph Corbett. Ooh. So in 1951, he had shot and killed a man uh, by shooting him in the back of the head. He claimed self-defense, self but he was uh, sentenced to prison. He was moved from a maximum security prison to a minimum security prison because he was such a model prisoner and like behaved, but he was able to escape from the minimum security prison. So he was an escape convict. Yeah. Um, and the and landlord identified. What's that? I said, and who shoot someone in the back of the head in self-defense? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the landlord had identified Joseph Corbett's mugshot as being Walter Osborne, the man who was renting the apartment. So, uh, Wal Walter Osborne slash Jason, Jason Joseph Corbett 
had been working as a paint mixer for the Benjamin Moore Company under the name Walter Osborne. Uh, he, uh, he, oh, sorry. Uh, he had bragged to a coworker uh, previously. Uh, to any, sorry, let me state that over again. He had bragged to a coworker previously and said, watch the newspapers. Someday there's going to be a big thing to bust loose here. And then you won't see me anymore. Oh, that's ominous. Yeah. Um, he also had bragged to other people that he was going to get some big payout at some point. Uh, and Corbett stopped coming to work the day after the kidnapping. Yeah. So, okay. Anyways, suspicious. Kind of like, all right, so this guy has the car with the license plate. And these, all these things are kind of adding up. So. Yeah. Anyways. Back to the typewriter. Uh, this type of machine was sold at the May DNF department store. And a clerk there had recognized Corbett because he was one of very few people to pay in cash. So this was the 1960s and credit, the department store credit was kind of starting to be pretty popular throughout the 50s yeah. and 60s. Fun fact is that women were not allowed to open up bank accounts without their husbands. So yep. they used department store credit as a way of having basically kind of like their own bank account uh, yeah, as a way of them. Yeah. Yeah. As a way of actually, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, that's why departments for credit and credit cards kind of became popular during the fifties and sixties was because women could not have their own bank accounts or okay, yeah. without their husbands. So it's very difficult for divorcees or single women or women who are like planning on leaving their husbands to even be financially stable. So neat. And this was like not that long ago. Yeah. Also, also the reason why department store catalogs became popular because was because nobody could tell you were a minority over the phone and oh. you would not be discriminated from purchasing uh, an item like you would if you walked into the store, yep. you know, they can't really woman you. Yeah, exactly. So that's why department store catalogs and like JC Penney catalogs became quite popular. Um, yeah, which is sad, but also brilliant for these companies who are making these things possible for people. Um, anyways, so the clerk had recognized Corbett, and he had bought the typewriter four months prior to the kidnapping. Uh, so the FBI pull, put out an all-points bulletin on Corbett's uh, 1951 Mercury sedan. And eight days after the kidnapping, 1,000, or no, sorry, 17,000 miles away in New Jersey, police find the car because it was left at a dump. And it was burning. Uh, it had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. There you go. Yeah. So no license plate on the car, but the serial numbers uh, were able, with that, they were able to link the car to Walter Osborne, which is Joseph Corbett's um, alias. 
Wait, are you saying that had he not set the car on fire, authorities probably never would have been alerted to where the vehicle was? It would have just sat at the dump? Um, I don't know. But the guy at the dump found this car. And because the all points bulletin had gone out, which, you know, alerts everyone that, you know, this, this is what the FBI is looking for. They were able to find it. But so. being on fire is a literal smoke signal to the location. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you'll see that like Joseph Corbett covered a lot of his tracks, but also made a lot more problems for himself because of this, mm-hmm. you know? So under, uh, so under the undercarriage of the car, investigators found four layers of soil, sand, from the New Jersey coast, which probably was there from it driving to the dump. Soil from a country drive, most likely on the way to the to New Jersey. Uh, the oldest soil sample was uh, had many different types of shale, consistent with the soil at the kidnapping site. Ah. And, but the layer in between, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, the layer in between, there was another layer uh, with large amounts of granite with pink feldsbar. And this is where they suspected that Corbett had gone to drop off uh, or may or may not be where um, Adolf Kors is. Sorry, he also went by Ad Kors probably because this was the 1960s and Adolf is not an ideal yeah, name. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So I should probably stop calling Connor him Tate. Adolf. <laughs> Start calling him Addy. Ad. So, uh, so the FBI took soil samples from all around Denver and the surrounding areas. And they found soil similar uh, at Pikes Peak. 10 miles west of Colorado Springs. So searching the area was a huge undertaking. And eight months after the kidnapping in an area frequented by hunters, uh, searchers found a human skull, bones, and clothing that belonged to Adolf Kors that he was wearing the day he disappeared. And this is where Pat walked in on (laughs) my forensic files. Um, how he spoiled it for himself. Yeah, and I, all I could shout at was like, "He's fine!" I swear. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Not too great for Adolf Kors well, here. Um, there were two holes in the shoulder blade, uh, in the shoulder blade bone from a projectile, and two holes in Adolf Kors Adcor's jacket. So this was also consistent with the fact that uh, Joseph Corbett liked to shoot people from behind. Uh Uh-huh. So, you know. uh, They also found a pocket knife engraved with AC the third. So pretty obvious that this is Adolf Kors here. Uh, But the bones are in pretty good uh, condition. So the FBI knew Joseph Corbett was most likely the killer, but... They had no idea where he was. The FBI b- believed that he had planned the crime months ahead of time. So he became one of the most wanted people in America, if not the world. Um, J. Edgar Hoover even said this. And uh, 
that's how like famous this crime was at the time or how much this was in the media. So Joseph Corbett had planned this for a very, very long time. Even one month earlier, he, this is when he purchased the Mercury and he had stored that car in an offsite garage. So his neighbors wouldn't know that he owned the car. So they wouldn't even be able to connect it to him, which is pretty brilliant, I must say, but he kind of messed up a few other ways throughout here. Yeah. Uh, he had typed and mailed the note the day of the the um, kidnapping. So he had to have mailed it before the ransom note. He had to mail that before he went and, and actually did it. Kid, kidnapped him. So they basically believe that um, Joseph Corbett drove to Creek Bridge knowing it was like a one-way street, which would kind of pigeonhole course and that was part of his routine um and i was talking to pat about this like if you're a high profile person and this is this sucks because this is the world that we live in if you're a high profile person or a vulnerable vulnerable person you cannot afford to have a routine and this is the reason why when i would go walking i would not go walking in the same places at the same time i always tried to vary my time, you know, and go in different directions in different times. So no one would ever be able to figure out my routine. And that sucks because as a woman, that makes me a vulnerable person, even though I'm not anybody, you know, and oh, but somebody would want to kidnap you for other reasons. So. Yeah. So because it happened. And that sucks because that's like the reality that we live in. You know, and it sucks for, you know, a ad course that he was just trying to live his life or whatever at this time, you know, despite what his family did politically or whatever, that just sucks, you know. He was just um, trying to go to work. Yeah. Yeah, just trying to go, just trying to kiss his horse wife and go, <laughs> yeah, go you know. Support his horse wife. <laughs> to have the finest apples and carrots. So most likely Joseph Corbett had backed his car onto the bridge and he had made it look like the car had broken down um, to lure. Yeah. That's what they suspect. And, um, Coors had gotten out of his car to help. There must've been a struggle and, uh, Coors probably didn't want to cooperate with getting into the car or being kidnapped. And that is why Joseph Corbett shot him there which is why there's blood on the scene. Yeah. And he probably took his body and then went and dumped the body. But this is why the note that he had sent in earlier had this plan for ransom, but the kidnapper never contacted because the plan went awry pretty quickly. Um, Yeah. So a woman in Vancouver called the FBI to say that a man ma- matching Corbett was living in her apartment. Uh, the, they were able to arrest him, but the typewriter or the paper that he used was never found. Corbett pled not guilty, but he was sentenced to life in prison. And that is the sad, sad situation of what happened to Ad Kors Third. Well, I was going to say, though, that he should have just took the money and ran. 
kind of what they did with the Lindbergh baby, you know? I feel like like maybe it, of course, wasn't cooperating with getting into the car and he just panicked and shot him. Um, And that's what happened, you know? Which, yeah. It sucks. Yeah. But he still could have collected the money in a way. He still could have, but that's also risking getting caught doing that. And who knows? Maybe he didn't plan on going and dumping a body. Who knows? Maybe that's having to, yeah, having to get rid of the body. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was pretty sad, crazy story. I had no idea about that story until I had watched this weird history on, uh, on YouTube. And... Uh, I always wanted to talk about the Lindbergh baby and it reminded me a lot of that story. So yeah. I thought these two would fit in together. Um, but yeah, both very sad that that has to happen. And um, yeah, well, that's a, that's a sad way to end the podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Happy so far, you know, Oh, God, I got to, yeah, I got to have some happy, happy podcast. Too bad next week's is not happy either. And the What's next, next week? Is the, what is Dorothy next week? Stratton and Lana Turner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, it's not my happy little podcast, so. That's true. You know. Just weird stories. I'll get more into like maybe conspiracy theories and stuff like that maybe later on that's not so sad face um and down the line and maybe we'll do like some bermuda triangle stuff yeah so i heard there's an alaskan triangle now too but i think that's sad i think it has to do with people dying and going missing so maybe (laughs) yeah i feel like in alaska if you disappear yeah that's kind of common because it's Alaska and there's yeah. just a lot of wilderness and not a lot of people whereas you know Florida where it's a little bit more populated and you have mm-hmm. more traffic it's weirder but also like the stuff that they've seen there in the Bermuda Triangle you know the mm-hmm. uh, equipment all going haywire and seeing lights under the ocean yeah we talked about it a little bit on Hollywood's Haunted because there's also the Hollywood Bermuda Triangle as well, in Be- or the Beverly Hills Triangle that we really? talked about. Yeah. But we can talk about it again on this podcast, a brand yeah. new podcast, though. The, you know. the, the episode with the triangles. <laughs> the one with triangles. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I have some ideas of some people I would like to talk about. Like, um, I like to talk about Madame Tussaud. I thought her story is pretty cool. And then there's this other guy who was uh, like an early American. He was like alive around the time of Benjamin Franklin, I think. Or he might have been European. I don't really know. But he really wanted his head preserved. Um, So... He his preserved head still exists, so I'd like to talk about him. Like some unlike other Disney, stuff. what Walt Disney's head is not frozen or preserved. No, it's not. No, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. or or is it? <laughs> no. 
What are they going to do? That's so expensive. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. Wasteful. Do and you also, want me to stop like, uh, recording, Tia? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe. Right. We need to do the ending, though. Okay. Right, okay. Right, let, me, let me just do the ending right now. Okay. But so. edit most of that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Decapitated, frozen. All right, all right. We'll wrap it all up. Okay. So that was really super sad, and apologies in advance for many more sad episodes to come. Uh, this has been my weird little podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please follow us on uh, Instagram at my weird little podcast or on Facebook at my weird little podcast or email us at my weird little podcast at gmail.com. Stay spooky, everyone. Woo. Mm-hmm.